Hi, I'm Victoria Starik Somalin, co-founder and director of strategy at the Council on Geostrategy, a new foreign affairs think tank based in the heart of London. And this is Geostrategy 360, our fortnightly podcast which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people and experts. Since the UK became the first major economy to commit to a net zero target in 2019, concerns have increased that the transition to electric vehicles, wind farms and other advanced technology would leave the country exposed to Chinese-dominated supply chains, just as demand for the critical minerals required for this transition increased sixfold. Unsurprisingly, the risks spelled out in Her Majesty's Government's integrated review in March 2021 included increased competition for scarce natural resources, such as critical minerals, including rare herbs. The review also stated that control of supply may be used as leverage on the other issues. In its October 2021 net zero strategy, Her Majesty's Government committed to addressing this by forming a critical minerals expert group, setting up a critical minerals intelligence center, and by publishing a critical minerals strategy in 2022. Therefore, the Council on Geostrategy has just launched a new policy paper, Critical Minerals, towards a British strategy, which recommends an approach to address both the need to ensure resilience and the opportunity to capture growth in critical mineral supply chains. The paper is written by our two associate fellows, uh, William Young and Jack Richardson, and the policy paper is also endorsed by Mr. Alexander Stafford, who is a member of Parliament for River Valley and a member of all party parliamentary group on critical minerals. And today I'm absolutely delighted to have an opportunity to be joined by one of the authors, William Young, and also Mr. Stafford, to discuss the policy paper findings and recommendations on how we can secure our supply of critical minerals for the net zero transition ahead of our critical mineral strategy next year. So Mr. Stafford and William, welcome to Geostrategy 360. Hello there. Great to be here. Mr. Stafford, I would like to ask you the first question. Well, you are a member of all party parliamentary group on critical minerals. And as noted in the introduction, in recent years, the demand for critical minerals has been significantly increasing. Uh, What are these critical minerals we're talking about and why are they so important? Well, I mean, the, the example that I always use is look at uh, electric vehicles. Electric vehicles are going to be a key part of going to net zero and a key part of what the government wants. And in an electric vehicle, uh, each each electric vehicle currently uses about 100 kilograms of copper uh, and the rare, rare earth from uh, magnets, lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese and the graphite for the batteries. If you look at things such as your touchscreens on your phones, uh, even your cars nowadays, we're looking at a huge number of critical minerals such as potassium, tin, copper, tungsten, and advanced aluminium. These are just a few of the critical minerals, but there's so many more. Basically, anything that is new, anything that is modern, anything that is the way to the low carbon, is full of these critical minerals, these, these vital minerals, which we want to discuss today. William? I think the uh, the key thing ahead of us at the moment is um, because there is such a enormous number of these potentially critical minerals is to begin to think about what uh, the, the focus should be and probably staging that focus. The, the, the key thing really is around uh, which are totally concentrated 
and uh, Alexander mentions a number of them there, one of which is the rare earths um, and, and so on, the, the rare earth elements essentially, where you know historically the, the production has both been in the US, but then increasingly in China over the last uh, 25, 30 years. And so I think there are, some, there are some key pinch points around rare earth elements, around cobalt and so on, which the government is gonna need to focus and, and prioritize on initially but I think the, the wider point that Alexander makes, which is that there is not only uh, a sort of a, a supply concern, but also an opportunity uh, in these critical minerals to, for the UK um, essentially to take advantage of over the next 25 years is, is a sort of key point that we wanted to bring out in the, in the paper. Um, back in 2010, there was a relatively small incident which brought the world's attention um, to the Chinese domination of uh, rare earth elements market. And well, the, the incident was that a Chinese fishing troll captain who had tried to fish in waters controlled by Japan collided with two separate Japanese coast guard ships uh, before being detained by the Japanese authorities. And shortly after, uh, the People's Republic of China cut rare earth elements uh, export quotas to Japan by 40%. Uh, with many people also believing that this was being done to put some political pressure on the Japanese. Now, my question is, um, how did we end up in the situation with China almost entirely dominating the rare earth production market? Mr. Stafford. Well, I mean, let's be honest, China has got an aggressive expansionist policy uh, and they are desperate to hoover up as many uh, resources, not just critical minerals or rare earths, as possible. It is neocolonialism of parts of Africa that China is doing it. They, they are they're using basically slave labor in like Xinjiang to exploit them. But it's not just about the, uh, the, the development of the materials. It's also about the refining of materials. And this is where I think the, the West has completely dropped the ball. We've allowed China not only to control the actual source of these material, minerals, but how we refine them. For instance, only 1%, China only mines about 1% of the world's, world's cobalt, but actually refines 65% of it. And it mines 12% of the world's manganese, but refines 97% of it, and 89% of the world's graphite. So we are getting this ridiculous situation where we've got countries such as Australia, which has got a chock full of rare earths and critical minerals, which is then exporting them to China to refine and then send it, buy them back from China back to Australia, which to me is a ludicrous situation where we are in the West are allowing China to dominate this market. And that is bad for our you know, bad, bad for the environment, and but also bad for our own uh, self-reliance, especially as we, as we, we cannot trust China. William, would you like to add anything? <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's some very interesting long-term study around the, the uh, essentially, particularly on the rare earth side, how China identified this as a, a key opportunity for itself to dominate a, a particularly strategically important sector. And over time, it was able through essentially undercutting US production to shift most of the supply chain to China. Um, this is relatively straightforward, staked backed, um, you know, expansion and growth, you know, it, with a little bit more impetus around the sort of the, the strong growth of their domestic market, which was, a, you know, a great aid. Um, the, the question then is, well, how do you either adjust for that? Is this something that you take to the WTO if the WTO is still functioning in this fashion? Certainly the 2010 dispute was resolved partially in the short term by a successful um, uh, case being brought through the WTO by Japan, the EU, 
uh, and the US. Now, the question is, does that solve uh, an underlying dependence and supply chain dependence? No, it really just adjusts for the worst excesses. So I think the question really comes is, in an extreme scenario, actually what critical dependence do you have that you wouldn't be able to solve within three, four years? Because that's how long it took the WTO to solve it, and the WTO is not as functioning well as, as functioning as well now as it was then. I guess the biggest challenge also is um, the People Republics of China uh, apparent willingness to use this dominance um, as some sort of leverage in international disputes and international relations. so I wanted to ask you both, how is the situation different now in 2021 in comparison to 2010? Are we, are we better prepared to deal with this challenge and to address it? Or are there still many issues remaining? And if yes, how can we, how can we solve them? Mr. Stafford. Well, I, th- I think we're in a far worse position now, to be honest, uh, for, two, for two reasons. Firstly, we are now in the West far more reliant on these critical minerals, these rare earths. We're talking about, you know, the 16 different uh, minerals and metal which go in a single solar panel. We are going full steam ahead to a, a net zero future, which is great. I completely agree with. But we need to build the solar panels. We need to build the, the wind farms and they need to be chock full of these rare earths. So we're now going full steam ahead. So we need them more. On top of this, we're seeing a far more expansionist China, a far more aggressive China. We're seeing that, you know, on the border with India, we're seeing that in Xinjiang. We're seeing that against Taiwan. We're seeing that with Hong Kong last year. We are we are f- facing a Chinese government that is more and more, uh, frankly, more and more dictatorial and away from the values of the West. And I think we... Uh, what really brought it home for people in the government was, if you remember the PPE crisis in the hmm. UK last uh, March, where I think we, we're not, 99% of all our PPE came from China. When the times got tough, China just pulled the drawbridge up and uh, stopped sending us PPE, broke contracts, didn't support us, didn't fulfil what they were contractually obliged to do, and what they said was a substandard, which to me really shows that China is quite happy to pull the drawbridge up when it wants to. We can't rely on them. We cannot have a good trading relation. And if we need so many more uh, rare earths, which we do in our technology, like you know the F-35 fighter, for instance, that is full of critical minerals as well. If we need to rely on them, uh, but there's 400 kilograms of rare earths in an F-35 fighter. If China decides and doesn't like us or decides that we are going against the policy, they'll cut, they'll cut off the tap then. They'll just pull it up and act in a similar way we've seen Putin, frankly, act when it comes to gas. And we are putting, we're giving the, we're giving them the tools of our own demise to, frankly, our enemy and a country we can't trust. So it's got far worse. I think Alexander makes some very fair points. <laughs> the, the one addition I would make is that uh, since 2010, the, uh, the work that has been done essentially on the upstream side of things, the mining and the extraction, has shown progress. So what I think we, there's always a risk um, amongst some uh, of our community that says China is so large. It is so dominant, it is so cost efficient, cost efficient in, in inverted commas there, that actually you can't compete. And I think the, the one of the key messages of the paper is that since 2010, actually it's been demonstrated that you can shift the, you know, the, the, the needle on this. It is over years possible to shift the needle. And so I think there's this balance that says, yes, there is a significant and, and sort of, I don't say clear and present, but there is certainly a clear danger um, of dependency here. However, it is possible to make that shift over a period of time. 
So we have outlined uh, this massive problem, but the question is, do we now really as a society and also do our policymakers better understand the significance of diversification and also opportunities in the critical mineral sector, Mr. Stafford? I think they do now. I think, you know, if they had a conversation 18 months ago, no, frankly. I think uh, in some way the PPE crisis actually brought home and also what was going on in Hong Kong, and also what's going on in Xinjiang, really brought home to the government that, frankly, you cannot trust China. And that is a concern. I think we saw this, the government uh, changes policy on Huawei. I think last uh, February uh, was, or maybe January, the government was full steam ahead with Huawei as part of infrastructure. That would never get that, we'd have to change the policy and change that. So the government has realised this, albeit late. And we're seeing the same with Australia as well. They've also realised what's going on. They can't rely on China. So I really see that the sort of five eyes are really getting together to actually develop that. But we've also got to be realistic about critical minerals in the sense that for the UK, we've got some lithium, we've got some cobalt, we've got some gold, nickel. We don't have it in large amounts. We will never have it in large amounts. So we in the West need to find our place when it comes to dealing with critical minerals. And for me, that's sort of twofold. Firstly, it is about developing those links with those countries that have critical minerals and having good uh, free trade agreements. I mean, Australia, they've got lots of rare earths. Even Greenland's got a good supply of, of rare earths through, through Denmark. Uh, parts of the Commonwealth do as well. So develop those links with countries we can tr- trust and rely on. But also in the UK, not just grow our own mining capacities, but also our refining capacities. Because as I mentioned earlier on, if we're, if we're mining the resource and then sending it to China to be refined, we are giving them an opportunity to, to hold that sword of Damocles over us. But if we can develop the homegrown talent of refining, which I very much believe that we can do and should do, you know, we talk about the red wall, seats like mine, manufacturing seats, we can do that. We have a better control of the supply chain. So I think the government is now waking up to the threat of this and the need to secure the whole value chain. William, what about the experts community? I think the opportunity is, is, is right in front of us. The, the joy of this is that actually, although the UK has been aware of this issue for 10 years, it's 11 years, it's not done very much about it. It's essentially left the running to other countries, which is why we've seen a slight improvement, but not a dramatic improvement. But I think by convening people through this expert committee, through the joint intelligence or the, the intelligence center, and then in due course, putting out a strategy, the government has a chance to leverage what is essentially a deep well of expertise in the UK, in its both its academic, its uh, and, and other institutions, but also it's in its commercial and investor base, to essentially grasp those opportunities, um, which is essentially a diversified, non-Chinese-based supply system. Um. In the recent years, have any any important practical steps uh, been taken by by the UK in order to address this challenge? Uh, I, I think, we'll be honest, not that many steps. It's fair to say. I think I had a I took part, I think, last year in a, a call with lots of different department, government departments uh, round table. It must be about representatives from about fifteen or 10, 15 different government departments. Everyone from Defra to MOD and stuff. And this was the first time they really got around a t- virtual table to actually discuss these issues. Mm-hmm. And I think some departments are have their own little strategies and going off. But unless we see it as a whole, we're not going to make uh, a, di- a difference. And I-, I really think the government is lagging behind where they, they should be. And they're only now just sort of getting to grips on this. And I think we've seen this in some of the parliamentary answers that I've got in response to my German debate and the like. So 
we have a lot further to go. We are we are literally in its infancy dealing with this. Totally agree. I think the good news is that back in 2010, this this sort of question occasionally landed with DEFRA. Now this question quite clearly lands with Bayes, and that is, although it's not the answer, it is at least a significant department that knows roughly how to do these sorts of things. So progress in that sense. So we have a critical mineral strategy due to be published next year, which hopefully will help us to assess and uh, determine the steps which need to be taken um, to reduce our supply chain risk exposure and also capture some opportunities. So I would like to talk a bit more about the opportunities out there and how we can encourage um, our government and also our businesses to think uh, think more about this issue and to act on it. Um, Mr. Stafford, how do you envision um, this happening and what steps can be included in this strategy? Well, well, as I alluded to earlier on, I think the government rightly talks about the levelling up agenda and it's about the UK finding our place in this supply chain. I very much see the refining and processing part uh, of it in the UK. Places like my seat in Rother Valley, but other places in the north, the Midlands, could be transformative to add these extra jobs. We talk about building that better. We need extra jobs. We can't just increase the jobs we've already got. We need new jobs. And this sort of sector could really transform uh, areas like mine. So when we talk to the government, not just should we talk about uh, the threat from China and the control uh, of, of these also, but also the potential job opportunities, especially once again, if we deal with, you know, countries like Australia, we can process their minerals or other countries which we have good relationships with, we can have a huge uh, boon for our economy. And I think that's a very positive step. Well, yeah. Totally agree. No, I think the, the, the key thing is, is twofold. Really, it's to say, what are the current, what is the current cost structure of the industry that it has resulted in essentially China dominating this? And what are the levers that industry, finance, and government, and to some extent the research institutions can pull and push to essentially uh, adjust the current economics? Because it is going to have to be around that. And some of that is going to be around political will, just saying, actually, you know what, we are going to um, support investment in certain industries and in certain refineries whatever it is in certain regions and that is going to have to be a significant step but I, what i would also suggest is there needs to be a wider discussion bringing in uh, you know both the trading uh, community the standards community um the, uh, the the sort of financial community to think about how do you adjust this over long term so that china doesn't just adjust the prices and kill the industry which it did previously and I think that's the same dynamic that you see in, you know, in, in, in other uh, critical sources of, of, of material. You know, you see the same dynamic between uh, Saudi and the, and the U.S. at times on oil. Is you know, do you um, essentially just allow the lowest cost producer to have power over your industry at all times, or what levers can you actually pull to adjust for that? And I think that's that's also an important question to, to begin to answer or at least to explore. William, um, the recommendations in your policy paper, which you co-authored together with Jack Richardson, um, they focus on two key aspects. So, well, as, as we've already discussed, resilience and growth. 
Um, how how do you envision this policy paper uh, helping um, to to uh, create um, a constructive and a good strategy, which we have just discussed next year? What, what what's the positive impact of this policy paper? Well, I think uh, as Alexander kind of points out, there are there are many questions and many debates to be had. However, there are two or three things that are fairly clear. One is the, the sort of the, the risk and the exposure there, but the second is that opportunity and that growth uh, and the, the job side of things. So I think given that it is such an early stage for the UK in this discourse and you know, from parliamentary questions earlier this year to a, uh, a in commitment to a strategy next year is, is pretty darn good. So we are beginning to move fast, but it does also mean that the community is not aligned. Like the, literally the domestic and the international community are not aligned on what we should do, what the levers are to pull, etc. So I think the key thing that we, we concluded in the report really is there are many, 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 many different things you can do. However, one of the most important at this stage is bringing that community together and gradually aligning them around what a strategy could be. So actually, the next six months is really around engaging that community that's essentially been working with the US, it's been working with Japan, it's been working with Korea, it's been exploring in Tanzania, it's been exploring in Cornwall, it's been you know, testing uh, business opportunities in Teesside or Ellesmere. The question now is how do you begin to bring that community together and begin to tease out what the different elements of a strategy look like? And so I think that's that is actually the, the contribution of the paper is to say this community building exercise, this alignment of the, the people and the stars and the potential uh, economic levers is the most critical thing for the next six months. So it's not saying we have the answers because we don't yet. We will in due course, but they're going to come from the experts. Mr. Stafford, what do you think, in your view, are the key challenges we might face as we become more self-sufficient and more resilient? Well, I mean, there's, there are always going to be challenges to develop a market uh, and, and sell the goods and, and upskill people. I mean, there's different skills. Uh, I, I've talked about the North and the Midlands having lots of manufacturing skills, which we do, but that's not necessarily the same as processing skills. We need to have some of the fi finest minds. And we also need to deal with the price because, let's be honest, China will always try and undercut us on the price they can't they don't necessarily get the quality but the price is always a risk but i very much see this there's very few risks frankly very few downsides it's more about those opportunities and uh, i would say it's far bigger risk not to do anything uh, and that the biggest risk of all and unfortunately i think china has put us in this situation uh we wouldn't necessarily be in this talk of the conversation if china doesn't act more uh humanely for want of better words uh and more reliable Reliably. But we've, we've seen time and time again, that's not the case. And they've chosen to go down a different path, uh, very different from what happened in sort of what, where China was going, frankly, in the 2000s, where things seem to be opening up to be getting more democratic. Things have gone uh, reversed. So there's a huge risk of us not doing anything. And frankly, we should have had a critical mineral strategy already. It's, it's not good enough waiting until next year. We all know this situation is coming. The problem with the government sometimes is too many times developing strategies and not time actually doing stuff. We don't necessarily need a strategy to say we need to process critical minerals here in the UK. We need to have better links with our friends and our allies on this topic. We need to move uh, the critical supply chain away from China. They need that much strategy. Just get on with it. 
which countries in your view will be key um, in, in developing this self-sufficiency and our resilience? You mentioned a few already, but are there any others? Uh, as I said, and the main one to me is, is, is Australia. Uh, but then those with critical minerals, we're talking about the likes of in, in Canada, have got some, Greenland. I know there's some issues with the local Greenland government moment, uh, but obviously via Denmark. We've also got countries in, the, in, in Africa, I believe, uh, in uh, Botswana and a few others where we have uh, critical minerals. It's those countries which we can deal with, we can rely on, that we have those historic links, those democratic rule of law countries. Uh, those ones we can develop close ties with. And frankly, not being political about this, post-Brexit, it's easy, it should be easier for us to do this because we can make those trade deals on particular issues such as rare earths quicker and easier than, let's say, if we're part of the EU. William, I'm sure that you support Mr. Stafford's view that um, the opportunities far outweigh the risks, but also I'd like to get your view um, on any potential challenges uh, you see. In this regard, I totally agree. I, I think the the one fear I have um, is that this becomes a a money sink, and I think the 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 risk is that you selectively subsidise certain plants that may, in five years' time, be undercut by competitors in China or elsewhere. So I think that's why getting a handle on the current cost structure of the industry. And thinking about the uh, the wider uh, economic environment and the, the, the levers, be it the tariffs, be they taxes, be they um, other things there, that you can actually systematically drop down to improve competitiveness. That is probably the, the thing that I would encourage rather than just dropping 500 million on X. Right. So I think that's that is, I think, the wider that's hence why, why I would encourage a, a strategy is. If we if we just get on and do it, then it's possible we'll do this in quite an inefficient way. If we actually take about six months, probably, hopefully it's that quick. Um, you know, Alexander will know that these things don't happen that quickly. Sometimes I'm remembering the heat strategy. God, that took a while. Um, so you know, but I think the willingness is there, and frankly, the expertise from other countries. So Japan has already done this. The U.S. has already done this. Uh, Korea has already done this. Um, actually, our European colleagues have not done this. Um, so I think approaching those countries and saying, hey, look, frankly, we are allies in many different shapes and forms. What is the expertise and, and sort of learnings that you've had from those? Frankly, they could go very quickly um, in, in sort of upskilling our own uh, parliamentarians or you know, civil servants in this area. So I would encourage that. Mr. Stafford and William, thank you so much for joining me today and for having this conversation. And our newest policy paper, Critical Minerals Towards a British Strategy, was published earlier this week. And you can find uh, a copy online on our website, www.geostrategy.org.uk slash publications. And this is Geostrategy 360, the Council on Geostrategy podcast, which discusses current geopolitical and environmental security issues with politicians, government and military officials, business people and experts. You can listen to Geostrategy 360 on all major podcast platforms and you can find all our podcasts on our website, www.geostrategy.org.uk slash podcasts. Thank you.